I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. So in the uh, winter of 2023, right at the start of the year, some of you will remember, um, I, I had gone away for a bit of a retreat and was praying about the year to come, the year of 2023, and I'm just asking the Lord, you know, Lord, these are things I'm thinking about. These are things I'm worried about or stressing about or, or taking action on. But what are you thinking about, Lord? And, and where would you be leading us as a church? What are the things that are near and dear to your heart? And uh, on that, uh, that day of retreat, I really felt like um, the Lord led me to uh, the books of, book of Acts, uh, chapter 2. Um, and uh, in verses 42 through 47, we see a picture of what the early church was like. And um, as I sat there that day in prayer, um, I just, re- I, I guess I just felt really anchored in, in um, the idea that what we should be trying to be as a church uh, has already been told about. Um, and so um, I took uh, quite a bit of direction that day from the early church and the account that we read in Acts chapter two. And I came back that Sunday uh, the first Sunday that we were together in January of 2023, and I preached a sermon uh, that I called Vision 2023. And, and in that sermon, some of you may remember that uh, I made a very compelling case uh, for why we should set our aim at becoming devoted disciples, uh, wonder-filled worshipers, and must-do missionaries. And I want to start by just reading Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and then I'll explain why I'm preaching one of my last sermons of the year by talking about one of the first sermons of the year. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here as we approach uh, the end of the year, I was just uh, reflecting on um, all that God has done in our church uh, during this year and thinking about that vision uh, that we had set for ourselves as a church and just kind of asking, like, in what areas have we hit the mark and in what areas uh, is there still more room to grow? Now, some of you are already noticing that uh, I'm not preaching out of the book of Matthew uh, today. And uh, this would be one of the first sermons I've preached this year that has not been from the book of Matthew. Uh, But the reality is that uh, we have come uh, pretty close to the end of the book of Matthew. 
And I, I thought it would be really weird for me to preach about Jesus' death and resurrection on Christmas Sunday. And so um, we're going to actually set up ourselves to end uh, the Gospel of Matthew at Easter of 2024, which gives us eight weeks uh, to come at this idea of what it means to be wonder-filled worshipers. And uh, if you've been paying attention, you, you notice that... Uh, that's one of those three areas in our vision for 2023. Uh, devoted disciples is one of the others and must-do missionaries. And, and I think that those, those other two areas are areas where we've really excelled at in this year. I, I've noticed you guys, I've noticed us as a people being the kind of disciples who are devoted to the teachings and the ways of the apostles. I think we've done really well in that regard. And I also think that you guys have demonstrated uh, the type of commitment to mission uh, that would make you a must-do missionary, the kind of missionary that just has to do it because of what you've seen God do in your life, because of your own testimony, because of the testimony of the gospel in the world. You just feel so compelled to do mission. And that's why we're seeing growth in numbers here at Exeter Valley Church in the year 2023. But I have noticed that I think there's some meat left on the bone in the area of worship and in the area of seeing wonders. And uh, I know that you have a heart for these things because you've told me that you do, but I wanna just, I wanna kind of push us into these areas over the next two months. And, and so we're gonna be doing a series in the month of December uh, on worship. Um, the title of the series is Fit for a King. So this is part one, uh, Fit for a King. Why the title Fit for the King? Well, I wanted to take a look at the, um, the topic of worship through the lens of the Advent story. And of course, this is Advent season. Uh, we uh, always get excited about uh, Advent season here at Exeter Valley Church. In fact, this isn't the first time that I've preached an Advent series. So uh, this month, we're going to be talking about worship through the lens of the Christmas story, uh, the Advent story. And then we're going to come back in January uh, for a series called Unpacking the Gifts. And we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about the gifts of the Spirit and uh, how they empower us, equip us uh, as a church and as a body of believers. And so uh, I do, though, um, because I know a lot of you, like me, love um, studying the Bible verse by verse, uh, book by book. And uh, that's mostly what we do here, obviously. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that that's most of what we do here with our teaching uh, from the pulpit. And I did just want to, I, I did just want to encourage you that um, though we are leaving the book of Matthew for a couple months, we will not be leaving the Bible for the next couple months. Hopefully you'll find that um, the way we're coming at these teachings is still with scripture's authority in mind and as our starting point. And so uh, again, in these next few weeks, I'm going to be showing you what I think scripture has to say about this idea of worship. And today's topic is uh, answering the question, well, what is worship? You know, many of you have heard uh, the term worship and you, you may even associate the term worship with, well, that's like what we do when we sing. But the Bible actually has a lot more to say about worship than just our singing. And so while I know it's kind of a, um, a big topic to tackle, uh, I'm gonna give one perspective. And again, we're gonna look at it through the lens of the Christmas story. Most of what we see in scripture about the Christmas story comes from Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two, as well as Matthew chapter two. And, and in these uh, accounts of Christ's birth, 
um, I think we see some great pictures of worship. And we also see some pictures of what it means to be a non-worshipper or anti-worship, perhaps. In the story, we see folks like Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, and we see their story of worship. We see a man named Simeon worshiping Jesus in the temple at his dedication. We also see the worship of Mary and Joseph. We see the worship of the shepherds, the angels, and my personal favorite, the wise men. They're the ones that got the nod in this sermon series. As you can see, I named it after them as they brought gifts fit for a king to come and worship Jesus. And then there's also some non-worshippers, though, in the story. And this morning, as we started Advent, uh, we lit what's called the Bethlehem candle. And, uh, you know, Bethlehem is the, the, the city where Jesus was born, but um, Bethlehem's story is, is filled with some non-worship, I believe. As you recall, it was in Bethlehem that there was no room in the inn, no room for Jesus. That's the opposite of worship. And then we have King Herod. Of course, you're familiar with the, uh, the great villain of the Christmas story. King Herod was so threatened by the presence of Jesus, by the birth of Jesus, by the life of Jesus, that he tried to have Jesus killed. And so in, in his attempt to kill Jesus, the baby, he not only uh, came after Jesus, but he came after all baby, boor, baby boys born in that area. So we see Herod was an anti-worshipper. He was threatened by the presence of Jesus. This uh, shouldn't surprise us. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, uh, it says that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so in the Christmas story, we see what it means to worship Jesus rightfully as king. And we also see what it looks like to not worship Jesus rightfully as king. It says that the world did not recognize him. His own did not receive him. So here we go. We're going we're gonna to take a look this morning at what it means to become wonder-filled worshipers through the lens of the Christmas story. And let me just start by saying, there is so much wonder in the Christmas story. We've got prophetic, we've got angels, we've got babies being born, conceived by the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe in wonders, it's hard to believe in the Christmas story. Last week, uh, we, we had our last sermon in the book of Matthew for the year 2023, and Lori Riley came, did a great job teaching us about uh, Mary anointing Jesus with perfume, a uh, really expensive perfume, uh, at Bethany. And uh, this is actually a great lead-in to this series on what it means to worship Jesus. And uh, the phrase that Lori left lodged in my school for the last seven days was, it's not waste. It's worship. This woman's offering was incredibly valuable. I actually went and did the math based on what Lori told us. The amount of perfume I think would probably be worth twenty to thirty thousand dollars in today's economy. So it's no wonder that the disciples were like, "Why are you wasting all this value on Jesus?" But we learned in this story that it's not waste to give your best, to give your all to Jesus. It's actually worship. 
So we've been trekking through the book of Matthew for the last two years. And, and as I said, the plan here is to, is to step now into a series on worship and then in January to talk about the gifts of the Spirit and how we employ those gifts that we've uh, received. Anyways, I, I wanted to start with, with a working definition. Seems like a good place to start if you're going to talk about uh, worship and you're going to title your sermon, What is Worship? And so uh, the best definition I found, at least theologically uh, or, or you know, on paper, is from the Lexham Theological Workbook. And so in that workbook, it says that worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. So that would be the Lexham Theological Workbook's definition uh, for worship and what is Worship, But if you already noticed, Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, seems to say it the same. In fact, he says it, I think, better. And so we're going to take our definition of worship from Paul today in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This might be the shortest exegetical sermon I've ever preached, or at least the, the shortest passage that I've ever preached. One verse today. And you guys, uh, you think that you're in for a short sermon when you hear that? And uh, hopefully you are. <laughs> so what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at worship through the lens of the Christmas story, but I, I'm going to be teaching out of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So first of all, we see agreement that worship is first and foremost a response. The Lexham Theological Workbook said worship is the odd response. And Paul, Paul says it this way. He starts with the word therefore in Romans chapter 12, verse one And uh, one thing that I've learned about uh, Bible interpretation is that you should always ask yourself when you come to the word therefore, what is the therefore therefore? In this case, and in most cases, it's, it's an attempt to connect us back to something that the author just said. But in this case, most commentators agree that this therefore doesn't just connect us to the previous statement or the previous section in which Paul has explained God's plan for the salvation of the whole world through the nation of Israel. It's actually to connect you with the entire book of Romans to this point. See, uh, Romans chapter 12 represents a shift in this letter. The first 11 chapters are really the fundamentals of the Christian faith. In these first 11 chapters, Paul's given us his great systematic theology, right? He's explained the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, etc. right? This is the basics of the Christian faith by Paul, Romans chapter 1 through 11. And now in chapter 12, he's making a transition. Not what should you believe, but how then should you live is the transition that we're about to experience or that we're about to see. So in chapter 12, he's saying, in view of all these things that I've said already in chapters 1 through 11, in view of all this doctrine, in view of all these systematics, these deep, profound theological fundamentals, this now is how you should live. It's the application to the theological truths he's been proclaiming. So this is what the therefore is there for. Paul is telling us, in light of these things, this is how you should live. His next words are, I urge you. Therefore, I urge you. And we should know that if it, if it needs urging, 
That means that we won't always feel like doing what Paul is about to say. This is Coach Paul right here, right? As a coach, you urge your team when, when you're trying to get them to do something hard or something that they're not very good at, something that they're potentially a bit resistant to. I think this is super appropriate. Uh, Eugene Peterson, you guys, you're probably familiar with the message, which is um, not really a translation of the Bible. It's like a paraphrase of scripture uh, written in more modern language. It's kind of a fun accent to, um, to, you know, a real Bible. But anyways, you guys are probably heard of Eugene Peterson. He says this, um, he says, worship is often an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that develops into action. Let me say that again. Eugene Peterson says, worship is often an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that develops into action. Look, here's the point. Sometimes you'll feel a certain way and your worship may come naturally to you. But sometimes you won't feel any kind of way. And it's actually your worship that will lead you to the feelings that you're trying to get to. This is why I believe Paul says, I urge you. You've gotta be urged at times to do what Paul is going to ask you to do with your life in order to reorient your heart away from your sinful self and towards the perfect God. You've gotta reorient your feelings. See, Paul knew that living a ritual life of worship needed urging. And you shouldn't expect to always feel worshipful. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. Therefore, because of what I've said about the nature and the character of God, this then is how you should live. The next thing that he says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. And this is the why in the worship equation. And I had a football coach tell me one time that your why should make you cry. I know, and that's kind of funny. You don't think of football coaches when you think of crying, but your why should make you cry. Why are you doing what you're doing? Is there any emotion connected to it? This is the idea that this coach was trying um, to get across. And here's the thing. When it comes to your worship, the why should make you cry. The why you worship should lead to the feelings of worship. And what is the why? In the case of worship, well, Paul says, in view of God's mercy. See, what God has done is the why of our worship. Worship is just the fitting right response to what God has already done, to who God has already been. God's character and God's deeds are the why of our worship. Look, the good news of the gospel is all about who God is and what God has done. And, and this season, you guys, is not a season to remember how we've climbed the ladder to get to God, but a season to celebrate that God has come down the ladder to get to you and to get to me. The good news of the gospel is about who God is and what he has done. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the good news of this season. The Christian religion, it's, it's not found in a list of all the things that we have to do in order to get to God. Rather, it's found in a list of all the things that God has done to get to us. 
Our worship is a response not to what we've done, not to how we're feeling, but to what God has done, a response to who God is. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done, worship is first and foremost a response. God has initiated and our call is to respond, but how? Maybe that's what you're thinking. I imagined that that's what you were thinking. Part two of our working definition of worship, uh, as we're gonna see here in Romans 12, is that worship is a lived ritual. First and foremost, it's a response to who God is and, and, and what God has done. But secondly, it's a lived ritual. Paul says, next, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Finally, to the meat of verse one. And when Paul says to offer our bodies, what, what he's saying is to offer our lives. He's, he's not talking about making yourself a literal sacrifice. He says that the sacrifice we're to offer is actually a living one. This means that the way that we live our lives is in itself a sacrifice, an act of worship to the living God. It's, this means that it, it's not just something that we do when we're here in church one day a week on a Sunday morning. Your worship is not just your singing, though that's part of it. It's a piece of the puzzle. Your worship is not just showing up. Your worship is not just your serving, though that's important and a part of it. Your worship is to make your life, your entire life, a ritual. Now, Paul, uh, he's going to go on with the last five chapters of his book of Romans, and he'll describe how we should live in view of God's mercy. You should check it out. Uh, if you were in small groups with us last spring, we studied the book of Romans. But the idea that I want to communicate is that worship is not just our singing. Worship is not just receiving the Lord's Supper through communion, being baptized, whatever religious ritual you can think of. Worship is a living ritual. So in view of what God has done, how can we live worshipful lives as we enter this Christmas season. This is where we get to the application. And I think the main thing that I want to hear, I want you to hear me say this morning is that worship makes room for Jesus. We've already looked at this Bethlehem candle. I know it represents love. It's our first Sunday of Advent, but don't forget the story of Bethlehem is that there was no room in the inn. For Jesus. And, and sometimes this can sound really innocent, like, oh, shoot, that stinks. They had the chance potentially to birth Jesus at this little inn in Bethlehem. But, but actually not having room for Jesus, you guys, it's more than just an innocent mistake. In fact, there's nothing more evil or potentially destructive to your life than to not have room for Jesus. When we fail to make room for Jesus, the consequences are not just innocent. They're totally destructive. They lead to our death. Remember the other character in the Christmas story that, that didn't have room for Jesus, King Herod, right? He was, he was threatened. He's like, man, there's no room for another king because I'm king. So he ordered all the, all the killing of these innocent babies. He had no room for another king because he was the king. And, and this sounds super vile. It sounds like the opposite of innocent. It sounds like, how could you do this? How could you be so 
self-centered, but is it not the same thing that we often do? When we make ourselves, our needs, our desires, number one, aren't we making ourselves the king? Like, ah, Jesus, your ways, I don't know about that. When we say that we know better, what we're saying is there's no room for another king here. I'm the king. And so whether that's not coming to church on a Sunday because you had a hard week, you need a little bit extra rest, or, or maybe it's just standing here in worship and you're like, I don't want to look silly, so I'll just stand here. I'm not going to raise my hands or close my eyes or really into, enter into the presence of God. Or maybe it's even something even more simple, like I, I don't like the way my voice sounds. So I'm going to forget all those commands in scripture to lift our voice and sing praise to God. You get what I'm saying? I don't want these to sound petty, but there's all kinds of ways where we do exactly what Herod did. And we make ourselves the king. You know, we're living in a culture that says, well, I want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. Who cares what Jesus says? It's bigoted. It's outdated. Whatever the culture says about the Bible's view on sexuality. But when you make Jesus king, he's the king, and you're not. And that's the point. And Herod had no room for Jesus. And this is why he's one of the great examples of what it means to not worship Jesus. Now, sometimes we, we fail to make room for Jesus in less obvious ways. Sometimes we're more uh, ambiguous with our ways of avoiding worship. And when we do this, we, we, we can often... Uh, make room for words of worship without making room in our hearts for worship. Let me say that again. We can often make room for words of worship. I love you, Lord. Praise God. Praise the Lord. All the while, not making room in our hearts for worship. And Jesus actually warned against this in Matthew chapter 15, 8 and 9. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings, though, are merely human rules. Look, worship can include our words and our songs, for sure. But worship starts in the heart. So how do you know if you've made room in your heart for Jesus? Well, when we've made room in our hearts for Jesus, we, we bring him our best, whatever that looks like, even if it's the widow's might. We do not withhold. Think back to the story of Mary anointing Jesus, bringing her absolute best, what must have been like a family treasure, and pouring it all out on Jesus. Look, here's the thing. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. One of the, uh, the first accounts of ritual worship in Scripture, you got to go all the way back, I think, to Genesis chapter 4. My wife and I were having a debate this week about, you know, when the first account of worship uh, in Scripture took place. And so I, I got back to Genesis chapter 4. And, and in this account, we see the story of Cain and, and Abel. And, and the story is a little bit like there's some details that are left out. But what it seems in the story is the reason that Abel's sacrifice was approved and Cain's was not was because it does not seem like Cain brought his best. Cain, of course, brought vegetable offering, while Abel brought meat, fatted meat, the scriptures say. I mean, we could probably all agree, fatted meat, way better than vegetables. So, duh, of course, Abel's sacrifice was better. 
No, I, I jest, but, it, but it's not a laughing matter. The point of the story is that Cain withheld his best from God. And this is the opposite of what it means to be a worshiper. A worshiper presents its best to God, whatever its best is. Again, remember the story in Luke of the widow's might. We see another example in the New Testament of what non-worship looks like. Maybe you're familiar uh, with, with this story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Again, early church, they, one of the things we learned about the early church is they brought all they had, they pulled it together, and they gave to any who had need. Well, a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira came, presented a gift, but that gift was not actually what they said it was. It wasn't a total amount. They lied about the amount that they were actually giving. And in that story, this is actually one of the craziest stories in the New Testament, one of the uh, most like cautionary tales in the New Testament because Ananias comes, presents this gift that's not the gift that he says it is, and he's struck dead. And then three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, and it says in the account, they've already buried Ananias. And his wife comes back in. She tries to pull the same stunt and she falls down dead as well. Look, see, the opposite of worship is withholding. Author Francis Frangipane, he, he says this about withholding. He says, Satan dines on what we withhold from God. To worship God rightly is to give him our all and to give him our best. But to worship God wrongly is to withhold our all or to withhold our best. We can see this in the Christmas story through my, my favorite characters in the Christmas story, or maybe my second favorite. I guess I, it comes down to wise men and shepherds for me. The shepherds in the story have just heard from the angels about the birth of Christ. And now the, these shepherds are, are known as like lowly characters. These are not like esteemed characters. These are maybe the ones that you wouldn't think would be worshipers of the Christ child. And they're watching their flocks by night. But what do the shepherds do when they hear the good news from these angels? They come urgently to see Jesus. It says that they left their flocks by night. Now, wouldn't you think if you were a shepherd that the most important time to do your job would be at night, but not so important to these shepherds to miss the opportunity to see the birth of Christ. See, the shepherds responded with urgency. They came right away. This is the heart of worship. I'll drop everything for you, Jesus is what these shepherds said that day. And then, and then we see the story of the wise men. The wise men, what did they do? Well, they traveled a long distance. Man, an, an incredible journey to follow this star that they thought would lead them to something really special. And, and not only did they give their time and their energy in following this star, they also brought incredible gifts, really, really, really valuable gifts. They also rejected the anti-worshipper Herod, right? Herod said, well, oh, once you've seen the child, come back and report to me. They said, nah, we're not gonna do that. And they didn't go back to Herod like he wanted them to. Look, to worship God wrongly is to withhold our all or our best. But as we see in the story of the shepherds and the wise men, there's great examples of how to give him our all, how to act urgently, how to give him our best even incredible gifts. Some of you might be familiar with uh, Pastor John Stott. The Pastor John Stott says this about 
uh, Christian worship. He says, Christian worship is heart worship. However it may be expressed outwardly, it is in essence rational, involving the mind, spiritual, involving both our spirit and God's, and moral, involving the conscience and the whole life, the life of obedience. According to Jesus, these are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. And he quotes John 4, 23 through 24, in which Jesus says that true worship is both in spirit and in truth. Which brings me to one of my favorite lines in the whole Christmas story. See, Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, has just um, been told by the angel this crazy story of what's going to happen. The angel's like, look, Mary, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here. The Holy Spirit is going to get you pregnant. Mary's got to be like losing her mind, thinking to herself, wait a minute, that's weird. And if I get pregnant before I'm married, I'm literally going to get stoned to death by my community. But in listening to the angel, hearing the angel out, it says in Luke 2 that Mary treasured all these things and she pondered them in her heart. And then she goes on to sing one of the greatest songs of Christmas, Luke chapter 1, verse 38. Uh, she responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And here comes the song, verse 46. Mary goes on to say, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What does Mary do? What's her response to the good news from this angel? Her response is obedience, and her response is song. I'll do what you tell me to do, she says to the Lord. And then she turns to sing praises about him. Obedience and praise. Obedience and praise. Right living. Mouths open with praise. What if this was our response to what God has done? What if this was our response to the Christmas story? What if we were a church marked by obedient living and the praise on our lips? Look, folks, do you make room? That's the question that I have for you this morning. Do you make room for Jesus to be king? Do you give your first? Do you give your best? Or do you withhold? This season is about responding to the mercies of God who's made a way for us sinners by the flesh to be made right with God, to be made in perfect relationship with God through his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Look, the Christmas story is a worship story. And it's my goal over this next month to turn our eyes 
and our hearts to Jesus, the King of Kings, and to offer our worship to him from the heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift that you've given us, the gift of coming near, Lord. We thank you for the life that you would go on to live, Lord, the life that makes your birth so meaningful, the perfect life that you live, the, uh, the, the death that you died in our place so that our sin might be killed, so that we might have relationship with the perfect God, Lord. We're thankful that uh, in view of this mercy that you've offered us, we can offer our lives as sacrifices and that this is our good spiritual act of worship, Lord. Help us, God, to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Noel again. Just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us here at the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. And don't be afraid to join us in person on a Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. at the Exeter Memorial Building.